From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. Hey, and welcome. If you're a new listener, I'm happy you're here. If you've followed along with me in the past, well, thank you for coming back. Whether you're new or not, if you're enjoying this podcast or you have some feedback for me, it would mean so much to me to see a written review from you. I read and appreciate each one of them. So today, Martin Flaherty is my guest, and as you'll soon witness, we had some fantastic laughs together. There's great stories in here, and there's some clever life lessons. Martin is the witty and outspoken co-host of the podcast, Tailgating with Geniuses. His podcast blends the entertaining personality of the hosts with some of today's creative thinkers and leaders. So Martin has some interesting ties to the world of design. They date back to 2005 when he co-founded EcoScorecard. It was a handy tool for calculating lead points in design. There's so much good stuff in here. Let's just jump right in. You'll enjoy this. Do you remember the old foot measuring device when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. So do you know the name of that thing? No, I didn't Nobody even know it had a name. name. Right. It's called a Brannock. And it's one of my favorite objects in the world because it takes, well, first of all, everybody is filled with so much joy when they remember the, look at you, oh, I mean, yeah. you're cracking up, <laughs> right? You were so excited because you're going to the store and, you know, your mom's taking you and you're going to get a new pair of PF flyers or Nikes or whatever, right? Right, right. And the beauty of that tool is that it is something that everyone, it's an engineering masterpiece, in my opinion, an industrial design, just treasure because what it does it takes three things that are really difficult to get right and it allows you in a simple device to go ahead and working a couple two sliders to get three pieces of information and then you can get your shoes so um, the reason I love that story so much is because apparently and this is where I get weird is in my then I took this deep dive into how people bought shoes way back when and you didn't buy shoes that way and so it completely changed an industry it completely changed the Brannock clothing store in I think Syracuse New York um, stopped being a clothing store and they just manufactured the foot measuring device oh uh, wow so it, it came from a store it came from a store they that the, the son wanted a more efficient way of measuring people's I love that. right and so so I had that image up there to talk about how sustainability can be thought of and how environmentalism can be thought of and, and that we were trying to frame lead in such a way that was not this arduous detailed point system, which it is, but take it into a different lens. And that then got the furniture industry, the the trade association was really intrigued with that. And then they invited me in and I worked on the development and the naming and the brand of Level. So, and then in the flooring industry, I had been involved working on some rebranding as of some of the major companies there working and putting one of the biggest players online. So I've been in the back room, basically, um, of a lot of companies in commercial interiors um, on big sort of strategic issues. Now, there was, a, there was a level of frustration that drove you to invention, right? Through, through, you, you kind of invented your own little Brannock, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something you could hold in your hand. Let's go to Eco Scorecard. Sure. That was uh, your co-baby. Uh-huh. And... Uh, 
this came from all the exposure that you're speaking of right now, right? Yeah. So um, I'm uh, the best part about the the. I, I think, you know, uh, you, we're spending this time one-on-one, -on -one, and I appreciate it, and you're providing a lot of accolades going like, oh, Martin, you know, you're an interesting guy. Tell me this. Well, I mean, thank you, but the reality of it is there are other people, right? There are other people involved. It just wasn't me. And there was a guy named Paul Sherriari, and, um, who's a really dear friend of mine, and Paul... I mean, Paul's one of these fascinating weirdos in that he wakes up and all he sees is the world broken. He's an engineer. <laughs> he, he, he can't, I mean, he'll look at a cereal bowl what and be you, like, there's a more efficient way of what doing do you cereal. See? What do you see when you wake up? I, <laughs> I'm just really glad, right? I'm like, <laughs> You're just glad like, to wake up. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, God, it hurts, but okay, I'm here, you know, and then like, uh, um, you know, dropping into my ridiculous morning routine. But the um, the thing was with with regards to the frustration and what happened in the creation of Eco Scorecard is Paul and I. Paul was brought in because he was like the first um, lead certified um, individual in the state of Florida, and he had worked in the development of the training module for lead CI. He's the guy who wrote that. He also became this co-chair of Green Build. You know, they, they have a, a, a whole thing to set up. That was the big conference that they did. Well, Paul and I met because there was a client. That client uh, wanted to embrace uh, green and green building, and they wanted to tell the story. And Paul is all about bottom line, just make it easy. And I'm not that smart. And so when I'm <laughs> looking at like, you have to take zip codes and you have to take the number of miles and then you have to aggregate all of this material content and then you have to look at, I'm like, oh God. And so what I did is I came up with this thing, um, of course the name lead and I love some old visual metaphors. So I took the old dance steps from those old posters of like how you can waltz and learn like those little ghost things. Yeah. And I created a thing called learn to lead. And instead of talking about the complexity of the system, which was in the document, it was reframing it as a dance. It was reframing it as a way in which you would see this thing as a process and steps that were taken. Just a simple little trick. Well, Paul cracked up and he was like, oh my God, this is great. And we used it and it was a massive success for the company. He and I were at a Neocon going like, we just need to simplify all of this. And then Neocon is one of those fantastic places. If, if, if you're in the program or know Dr. Smith or every Wednesday you give your first name to a group of strangers and nothing else, Neocon's a bad place because there is <laughs> so much alcohol flowing around. But I don't do any of those things. And so I, I, I crashed the party, as one does. And um, I got just roaring, roaring drunk. And Paul was there. I was giving life advice to people. People I didn't even know. And I was sitting, it was that bad. And, and we had the, uh, the marvelous, stupid idea of walking back from this place, which was when we re, you know, reviewed it on the map, it was like four miles. Oh God. And we were just staggering through Chicago at one o'clock in the morning, came upon the merchandise mark, because that was sort of our North Star. And no lie, Doug, we sat there yelling at the building. Like, we were like, fuck you, you know, you need to, like, I mean, I'm sorry about that, but, you know, we're, we're like, this needs, this is, like, this is going to be easy. And, and so we, we sat there going, like, yeah, if every company could just tell their story in this quick, easy way, then a software could produce all the documentation and the numbers, and then you wouldn't have to do it, and everyone would go green, and it would be great. And, and it was just, 
two drunks just congratulating each other in that drunken, stupid way. And uh, we woke up the following day, hungover beyond belief, and going, that was miserable, but like, wait, that was, we said that thing. And then that's how we started Eco Scorecard. The next day we were like, that's <laughs> actually amazing. good. And we actually started like literally over breakfast writing stuff down on a napkin. That's that's how it began. Wow. Yeah. Um, you had a lot of experience presenting to executives, coaching to executives, presenting to marketing teams, selling your personal services. What role does humor have in your success? <laughs> and how could you coach someone around humor? Can somebody become funny? I mean, I just want to talk about humor for a minute there. Yeah. Why do you use humor? Um, yeah, because everybody loves to laugh. I mean, it's just, there are just these common elements that cut across all of us, right? We, we all, everybody wants to be recognized. Everybody wants to be appreciated. Everybody wants to be sort of, uh, in some ways, brought in and made to be a part of. Mm. And I think humor is this leveler, if you will, if done well, right? And, and this is to, to the second part of your question is like, can people do that? You know, my short answer is yes-ish, right? Um, a huge majority of people have no idea that they're not funny. Um, they can appreciate humor, but when they try to be funny, they're just not. It, comedy's hard, uh, and, and being funny is hard. If you don't think so, go to an open mic night one time and get up on stage. <laughs> try it. It's, it's, it's difficult. But um, I think in, in measured ways, um, using levity uh, and being playful is, 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 is a valued trait as long as it doesn't get in the way of the larger objective. Has it, has it ever backfired on you? Like, oh my can you God. actually, can you remember a moment oh. where, where like <laughs> you ruined the room? I've, I've, I've shat the bed more <laughs> than a few times. I do that past tense. So I, I, there's nothing, and that's not going on right now. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I think the humor, the, there's, there's truth in humor. Great humor mm. is pointing something out. Uh, again, you can go for a laugh, but uh, I think w one of the things that I love about using humor is you can tell a truth in it, and that truth can be at least brought out into the light of day and bandied about a bit. You know, it can be considered. Um, right. But to give you a horror story, there was one of the largest, um, I, I can't mention their name, but like, like the biggest cabinet company in the US, if anybody wants to Google that, it's not hard. I, I was brought in because they wanted to do, be like a sustainability brand. I was like, great. So as I went through this process, you know, the president was in the room, the head of marketing was in the room, and oh my God, man, they, 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 they could not get rid of me fast enough. Because what, <laughs> I, what I learned was um, these guys could tell a story they wanted, they wanted a leaf. They wanted a frog on a leaf. They wanted a polar bear. That, that's what they wanted. <laughs> Literally, they told me that's what they wanted. Um, and what happened as a result of looking at it, I sat in the room and sort of had to do just the truth, which was, yeah, you guys are two years away operationally from being able to do the work that will then get you the ability to say to the world at large that you are 
a responsible company and you have these elements. And so I came up with this idea of adaptation because in nature, like mm. every species that survives, plant or otherwise, adapts to the environment. And actually, it's, it's, it's really one of the most... Um, one of the most important elements of any life form is adaptability. So I came up with this idea of adaptation and the company's name, and it was Adapts. Well, that doesn't sound very eco, right? That doesn't right. sound green or anything like that. And Doug, it was a turd in the punch bowl. I, <laughs> I, I delivered this whole thing in this position, and they very graciously wrote me a check and like, not frog marched me, but graciously <laughs> showed me the door and basically told me to just get out. Let me ask. I mean, when something like that happens, you know, you get marched out of the room. Oh, yeah. You throw the turd in the punch bowl. Do you, is there self-doubt that creeps in? Or... Oh, yeah. I grew up Catholic. I mean, <laughs> I, I still think that might be responsible for the Korean War. And I wasn't <laughs> born then, you know? Um yeah, there's always, well, I'm recovering from all of that. Not the Korean War, but uh, yeah, no, there's always self-doubt. Um, there's, you know, I, I got to know a, a little a little bit, uh, there's, a, there's an exec called Sarah Rabo Hagen. I've never worked with Sarah, but I've spent time talking to her. She's really good friends with um, Ken Schmidt, who's a partner of mine. And Sarah is, you, you just need to follow Sarah, listen to Sarah, read Sarah. She's got a book. She talks about failure all the time. And that actually, you know, we all say that failure is like, oh, it's really important to fail. But when you do it, you just feel like hell. It's right. like, it's like, God damn it, I screwed up the whole thing. Well, yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I failed a lot, you know, and I think there are two things about it. One is I've learned a lot from them, but it makes a way better story. <laughs> to, to talk about the failures, right? Because who doesn't hate that asshat who's like Johnny successful all the time? And you've had, you've enjoyed this sort of external perspective of our industry, right? And you've You've gotten to know the associations quite well. I know you've worked with IIDA, you've worked with BIFMA. And so in the world of construction, design, workplace, you've been on the fringes, you've been in and out, you've been in those deep neocon conversations. You know, how are we doing? There's a level of earnestness and seriousness that this industry holds on to. I mean, I think rightfully so. Work is... I mean, work is fundamental. Uh, you know, I, I don't care what your political bent is or your personal philosophy is. It's just there's so much dignity in work, and work is this incredible mm. thing and and thing to value. And I, I believe there there needs to be high respect paid to it. Coming from a guy who likes to take the piss out of everything, but you know, I believe there's a high respect to it and a high value to it. I think. The industry, though, has done, now I'm knocking the industry as well, the industry has done a very poor job of telling its story about the value that it creates. That's, that's interesting. Rather than, you know, focusing on the place and the people, which are easy, not easy always to grasp. I mean, sometimes it's taken us a while, I think, to, to tell the story about 
the impact of place on people. But there is like, there is something about work that you're exploring here, which I feel like we don't talk about. And, and everything we do is in support of it. Yeah, I mean, you, but you, why, why don't we, you know, I wonder why we don't go there. Well, I, I, I don't know either because, you know, the structural underpinning of virtually all that we see and do the results of, right? Be it product that we're, stuff that's in our refrigerator, um, things that you use as tools every single day, what have you, th those are all, they all come out from a process that typically is taking place in a work environment. And, you know, those people who create are so often working in materials and products provided by the designers have framed correctly for an application and that the materials that are chosen are specific from a purpose standpoint that they're there to allow for collaboration they're allowed for quick drop-in conversations they're allowed for like like those even those those huddle units that are quite popular now with sort of bar, bar stools and five people around and a monitor right. you know okay that that's a really good smart thing but like what is actually happening there you know you're now allowing for um a type of work that has a level of intimacy to it, that has a level of, you know, the text brought in through the person over on the monitor, or the share screen. But, you know, those are just thought of as, uh, I don't know how to, I, I think I'm getting lost in myself, but those are just brought out as, as, as functions. And yet what's core to that is Money is being made, decisions are being made, actions are being taken that is all from that. And this industry wants to have a higher level of recognition in what the value is that they bring to it. And yet it's not understood. You go to people working in a place, it's like, my chair sucks or my chair is good. It's too cold, it's too hot. I know, like I, 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 want, to, I want to better understand like flow state. And like, where does the real magic happen on a floor plan in a day? You know, like there, there, are, there are moments throughout the day, there are moments throughout the year that are those really special moments of work where the big idea or, mm -hmm. you know, the big collaboration or the decisions or the, you know, it's not like that's all evenly spread out. And so it's like, where does that, where does that happen? Like, why did that happen? Where does it happen? I, I do think we can explore work at kind of a deeper, more specific level than maybe we have in the past. Yeah, and I, and I think the timing is, is absolutely perfect for it right now. Um, I, I, you know, we have a show um, that, that we do that's different than this, but we invited, you know, we've, we've been talking about all of the stuff going on in work right now and mostly, you know, casting a jaundiced eye at a lot of it. You know, the comments from executives in the financial institutions like, you know, working from home is an aberration. That's a quote from the guy, I think it either Morgan Stanley or uh, Goldman. The other one said, I expect everyone back. And if you can go to a restaurant in New York, I expect you, you know, it was very, very harsh. We had Rob Kirkbride of um, Business of Furniture uh, we, we had talked in two different episodes about, like, what does it all mean? Workers sort of taking power 
temporarily, people at Uber, people at Microsoft, people at Google going like, oh, you want us to come back? No, hold on. We're not coming back yet. And it's this weird dynamic between sort of what leadership says and we control the paycheck and what workers are saying. It's like, mm, I don't know if I trust this environment anymore. And by the way, hybrid and work from home is actually... And, and no one can say it didn't work because numbers are up and people are putting in more hours. Anyway, we brought Rob on and we were talking to him. And Rob pointed out, he's like, he's like it, it's, you know, he was talking to Jim Keene of Steelcase. And Keene said, right now, CEOs, for the very first time, are talking about work. Hmm. Not just like, oh, I'm a CEO of a company that makes tires, cars, microchips. They're talking about work. Like, how does the best work get done? How, exactly. And what I found when I've worked with leadership, it's remarkable because that's a rarefied group that is making these incredibly, like, difficult decisions. And also, though, they want to understand, like, the work process. They don't want to go into the weeds. They do not want to understand, like, the, you know, 30 inches, 32 inches desk heights and things right, like that. Right. No interest. But productivity, maximizing the value uh, that an employee brings in and what the company is doing and benefit, the majority of them are completely game for those conversations. It's just that they don't normally have those conversations. It's all about a bigger issue for them. It's all about like longevity. It's all about continuing to grow, continuing to create value. I mean, there are very few. There's one CEO that if there was a revolution, I swear to God, they would get my first bullet. I mean, I've, I've met one guy who was like, but if everybody else I've met, it's been like, no. I mean, I don't always agree with them, right. but they, they, you know, they have an appreciation and want, and most of them want something better from what they've got in their spaces. So I think, I think the nature of work and how it's being considered is under a lot of change. And I think this industry should really look at that as an opportunity to talk much more clearly about what it is that they actually do. Because, I mean, what do people do? They, they're working on milk crates and, <laughs> you know, and old doors that they got out of a salvage yard? No. No. It's stuff no. that you guys make and other, you know, great companies make. And it's like, it's a feeling, you know, it's being in a room with somebody and right. feeling like you can tell the truth, you know, because like, I, I, I think there's, there's a ton of there's a ton of apprehensiveness around collaboration. There's a ton of guardedness between people. And like, let's face it, the best meetings are the meetings where you can tell your boss, like, dude, that idea sucks. Yeah. Right. But there's a, a level of pretentiousness that often occurs. Right. Oh my god. And I think I think materials, environment, I think the space can either work for that or against it. It can either fight against this pretentiousness, or it can it can help create it and sustain it. And it's like there's like a you know I I, I think we haven't gotten real enough yet. Mm-hmm. This is an old story, but I had the really good fortune. I was I was doing a thing for um for the Coca Cola company here, and it was an understanding how to better connect strategic priorities of the company with the employee base. So it was a pretty abstract idea, and. I brought forth this idea is like, well, how does the physical environment inform people's perceptions and behaviors? And so it was, it was a fascinating task that uh, got accepted for us to go and analyze. And 
the results are the results, but one of the coolest things in the process was we built a, a matrix to understand who we could go talk to. And it was all based on a company that had uh, stock erosion, leadership change, uh, a low perception of value by employees, and mm -hmm. then they used a series of things, one of which was the physical environment to make that change. Well, once that criteria was set, I wound up looking at, this was before the iPhone, so Nokia was the biggest thing in cell phones, hmm. Nike, and then, of all things, Alcoa. And what was mind-blowing was you're looking at a commodities steel, you know, a uh, manufacturing facility. Well, the CEO's guy was a guy named, he just recently died, Paul O'Neill. And O'Neill was this fantastically interesting character. And what O'Neill did is they had one of the skyscrapers in Pittsburgh, which was everything, Doug, that, that you were saying was like that very much power dynamic, huge judges paneling up on the upper floors. The executive suites were extremely, like a total different grade of material. Everything was completely separate from any anybody else who, you know, the, the rank and file workers in the company. And O'Neill said, yeah, this isn't going to work. He, he was brought in. They got rid of the president. He came off the board to run Alcoa because it was, it was basically in the toilet. And part of his whole process was we need to change. And this was 2000. And O'Neill basically put a bunch of furniture in the lobby. He he brought in a company to work with and basically said to everyone, which one do you like? And all the employees could like test everything that everyone was going to get. And then the first group where they did the installation of it was the executive leadership team. So the executive leadership team lost their offices. They all went to open plan and they all went to nine by nine footprints. Well, couple of them left, a <laughs> yeah, couple of them freaked yeah. out. But basically, what they started to do, what O'Neill made everyone do was, you want to change this company, you want to change this culture, we have to eat our own cooking. If we're going to be collaborative, we're going to do this, we have to really start behaving in a way that demonstrates that. So he built a building. He got a local architect, and right across the river, um, they built this building. And basically what he, the only walls that exist inside of the building are the bathrooms and the substrates that are on the, behind the whiteboards. Everything else is completely glass. Everything else is completely blown out. And everyone was working out of a nine by nine space. And so what he did was, and then, and then on top of that is you talked about those chance meetings. You talked about like, how do people collaborate? It would have been much cheaper to take the escalator, and I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an engineer, but uh, there's a way in which you could cheaply put an escalator in that people would not see each other as they went up and down the escalator. He okay. chose the more expensive option simply so people could run into each other. Hmm. So he purpose-built chance meetings, open, completely visible. He put legal in a totally open plan environment. He put HR in that thing as well. And then he started pulling them apart. Like, let's say there was the, 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 the guy in charge of legal who was dealing with the unions had to go work over in that area. So it was this, and it worked. Under his tenure, it worked. And it's just this really fascinating thing. And, and, I, and I will say to you, like, you can find amazing companies that like I'm dying to meet and and go see the offices of Chobani mm. because a uh, uh, guy's name is Hamdi Ulakaya who's the CEO who's just this fascinating character and he's all about like 
equity in revenue, equity in job growth, equity in making sure the town that they're in, this depressed area of upper state, upstate New York, and now in Idaho, is just is, is established. And he can't get people to leave the company. <laughs> Not that he's trying to, but people just right, love right. to be there. And so they feel like they're a part of it, even though they're line workers packing yogurt. That's pretty cool. Well, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to have to name this episode. There's Fucking around coming. with Martin. <laughs> I got lost. Sorry. <laughs> Go to the next one. So the story of this steel company may or may not have been the right approach towards designing the workplace that best suited the people and the tasks at hand. But it was the spirit, the spirit of change, of improvement, and knowing that a shift in culture would be critical. That spirit is why I really appreciated this story. And it's a bit emblematic of Martin in a way. He's a character that doesn't play it safe. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Martin. So, okay, you're still here. You haven't left yet. You're still listening, so I'll reward you. Here's a bit of bonus content. One more funny story from our time together to wrap it up. When you were describing that Volvo, it reminded me of another conversation. I'm, I'm reflecting here yeah, on my kids. The uh, I, I told Will to roll up the window. And, I mean, he was like, he knew what that meant. But then he asked, he was like, why, why do they say roll? You know, it's like, well, yeah. when I was a kid, yep. <laughs> you had to crank that baby up. <laughs> well, so my wife and I, uh, we were, were carpooling some kids. And um, so we had a Mazda 626. And, you know, this was really, we're, we were broke, you know. And this was, you know, our, our, our first sort of, it was a family car. It was a four-door. And it was a five-speed, which is great. I love stick shifts. But it had crank windows and the kid got in the car and was just like completely flummoxed and he i mean granted he was like five four or five he was probably pulling on this thing (laughs) pressing it well he then went home and apparently and and we're still very good friends with his parents and he said to his parents like um described it and they're laughing their asses (laughs) off They're, they're they're laughing and like well that's a thing to crank windows and then he said oh the flarities are poor (laughs) (laughs) because we didn't have the the electric windows so yeah so not only were we dinosaurs and luddites and and, you know but we were also broke apparently (laughs) so uh what do what do you i mean is there something that you miss from your childhood what do you miss the most uh, my mother-in-law tells me that I'm a Peter. I'm Peter Pan, basically. So she says I'm still locked in childhood, which in a lot <laughs> so of you ways, grown up, is probably true. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I really miss anything from my childhood. It, it, it's you know, except for my parents who've passed. Don't mean to get dark here, but you know. Um, that was actually really kind of cool. I mean, I grew up outside of D.C. Uh, well, we grew up in a lot of places. So I grew up uh, in, in, in the U.K. I grew up in Turkey. Um, but I, 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 what I really liked about those particular times was there was, and I still do a lot of it now, is there was so much experimentation. There was so much like that. Uh, I, I 
my parents were really big on like go out and do it just go take a chance give it a shot whatever and so uh i can i can and i can recall some really stupid things like you know taking a really crappy free spirit sears bike hauling ass down a hill onto like a bad wooden crate ramp and then you know thinking I'm evil Knievel and getting six inches off the ground and then sliding for 12 feet, getting cut up completely. I don't miss that part, but you know, um, you know, we, we would take chances on anything. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, to give you an idea is, uh, I was skateboarding since I was seven and it was about five years ago that I just stopped. So, wow. So yeah. So, so I, why did you stop? Was there, I don't bounce anymore. Yeah. I was kind of crunch. Yeah. I, (laughs) I was uh, there's some great parts of Atlanta, and I um, we have a we have a place uh, in in an area in town, and um, there's this marvelous run of a, of a walking trail. It's called Freedom Parkway, and um, I was just I used to go to a, meet some people at restaurants and such, and I would just take my board. I have bikes, and I would just take my board as a nice enough day and just go kick and just ride over to the restaurant. So I was coming back and I was just hauling ass. I mean, I was just doing full kick, you know, the arms are like windmills going, just pumping, pumping. And I have no idea what happened, but I planted mm. my right foot and it stayed on the ground. Oh, no. And then my left foot was on the board and it just kept going. And I just oh. like, I, I pulled, I pulled a groin muscle that took uh, almost two years to heal. Wow. And so, yeah, and then I just slammed into the ground. And, yeah, I'm, I don't bounce anymore. It, <laughs> it, it hurt way too much. And my wife was kind of like, mm, mm, is this the time? And I went, yeah, I think it probably is. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at OFS.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.